All right, welcome to the inaugural, the first ever episode of Stick Drift and Dead Zones. This podcast is where we bridge the gap between gaming and life. It is a focus on the awesome Serifs community that myself and a couple close friends have built over the last few months. These are gamers, and I have been chatting with them over the last few months and been introduced to a medley of amazing stories, personal successes, and tough challenges, and they've been so inspiring to me that I want to share them. I have gained a lot of insight from the people that are in this community, and I wanted to shout them out more. So Stick Drift in Dead Zones is a place to explore those lessons that we learn in gaming and to apply them to our everyday experiences, hopefully. Just to kind of to explain the name real quick, Stick Drift in Gaming is that unexpected pull. If you've ever played with a controller, you know what I'm talking about. It's that slight drift in the controls, and it's super unexpected. It can be very upsetting in the more hardcore competitive aspects of the game, I'm sure Joaquin can speak to that. The analogy is that life has those same pulls, those same curveballs. Dead zones are what the controller manufacturers have built in in response to that drift. They're areas where those tiny movements and pulls are ignored and allow us to maintain our control. So every episode of Stick Drift and Dead Zones is going to be about those abilities that we have to control the drift in our life, the ways in which we can apply what we've learned when those curveballs show up and the awesome stories that have helped build us into the amazing gamers and people that we are. Today's episode is going to be a bit of a jaunt, a runaround between some basics on gaming like loadouts and optimization. And it's also going to be about personality types, gameplayer fantasies, and game design. So if any of those things sound fun, stick around. We also have one of my favorite people to talk to. This is the last Joaquin. And although he calls himself just a regular member of the Seraphs community, he is one of the most clear and intelligent people that I have ever talked to. Not only in gaming, but just in life. He's insightful and wise beyond his years, but when it comes to his gaming skills, it's really impressive. In Destiny alone, he has called himself top 5% in trials, which I don't doubt. I'm sure the data supports that. Sitting at top 1.3%. Yo. Uh, after this weekend. <laughs> it went yeah, down I mean, a little bit. <laughs> the, it's, it's always tough to keep those numbers up in the most competitive zones but i mean you've been playing since you were a teenager right there's a long uh, history of practice of honing the edge so i'm excited to talk with you specifically about like what types of loadouts and games do you do you steer towards how do you like to optimize where do you find the most fun in games so i started originally with i think the the first pvp game that i started with was Halo. And it wasn't Halo 3 or 2. It was actually just the first Halo. Mm -hmm. um, but it wasn't until like 2000 and 
seven. <laughs> I was a PlayStation kid, but my uh, my best friend at the time had an Xbox, and he really wanted me to play Halo with him. So he found a uh, certain <laughs> pirated copy of Halo for PC, and oh, no. I remember playing it. Yeah, so we played. My first experience with Halo was a pirated copy for PC. I think it was called Halo Custom Edition or something like that. Yeah, I just I fell in love with it, and I remember I then bought Halo Two for Vista for Windows Vista, and then when I finally got a 360, I finally got Halo Three, and then from then on, it was just all uphill from there. And were you immediately just like PvP is where it's at? I I love smashing my friends into the ground, or what? What was that like? Early drive. So the big thing with Halo, well, it was around the time of Call of Duty Four and Halo Three, but the big thing that drew me into Halo Three was the custom games we you know and this is back i'm sure a lot of this has to do with the fact that i was in high school and you know everybody's always fond of their like childhood memories and stuff like that but it would be coming home loading up halo and seeing who was down to play what because at the time it was one of those games where it was pre-party chat xbox so you could only talk to the people that were in your lobby and you could also talk to the enemy team but what drew me into the PvP portion more than like single player stuff would probably be the competitiveness of it. Halo 3 had this ranking system. You would be 1 through 50 and you would just play different playlists and whatever whatever was your highest rating in a, any playlist would be your, your highest rank. And it was 1 through 50. If somebody was like above a 40, you know they were a good player. If anybody was above a 45, they're an exceptional player. And if anybody was a 50, they were like the top dogs and people would be like, Oh man, I really like the BR over the, I don't know, the carbine, mm-hmm. which are two weapons in the game. And somebody would just probably just shut that argument down where you're a 43. What do you know? And people would be like, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't even think I got out of the teens. If I'm remembering correctly back to those days, but it was an incredibly competitive area that I know Microsoft and Bungie when they were building out the space, were really excited about the future of the competitive scene. So they put a lot of time into what that dynamic would feel like of being, of elevating through the brackets. I don't think I was, I ever conquered more than like one double digit. <laughs> it was a, it was a tough space to ascend. I mean, back then Halo had a huge MLG scene. MLG being major league gaming. I'm not even mm-hmm. sure they're around nowadays, but it was the, the console major league for gaming. And it was usually Halo 2 and then Halo 3. I think the Call of Duties were part of it. But it was mainly the console ones, if I remember correctly. I, fighting games still had Evo and stuff like that. And PC games, I didn't play PC until I was almost an adult. So I'm not sure what it was back then. But I remember MLG was a big thing. Uh, it was like, those were the pillars of the competitive community. Uh, and people would watch MLG tournaments and... I think it was like probably the first, my first memories of watching people stream or watching streams would be these like Halo tournaments and stuff like that. What magnetized you to watching people and participating at the level that you were in that scene? I would say it would be like wanting to ascend to get to that level of playing, of like, of (laughs) being able to call somebody out for being less than 45 where you were at. No, no, because I think I was a 42. (laughs) I think I maybe hit 43, uh, but I was never, I was never like, super top you know and then other games came out halo reach came out and then halo 4 and whatnot but i think the peak of it was halo 2 and 3 for like competitive halo and then reach was when 
in my opinion, it kind of went downhill from there. Do you still feel that same feeling playing games like Destiny now? Not so much anymore. It's funny that you that you asked me that. Last year, or I'm pretty sure it was sometime in 2022, I think I was playing Apex Legends. I was playing with two of my friends, two of my buddies. Uh, we just they were both better than me, and they would always want to be playing ranked. And I always felt like I was the one holding them back. And I would be getting frustrated, but they were more happy. They were happier playing with me than, than winning. They didn't really care. But to me, a part of me still wants to win. And I, you know, it was, I was, it was frustrating. And I came to the realization that I was just like, wait a minute, why, why do I care? And I found myself thinking that I no longer cared about like my rank. Why do I care if I get to diamond or, you know, whatever's above diamond? Who am I going to brag that to? You know, to my friends? You know, my friends don't really care. They just want to play. Oh, interesting. And it was just kind of this point where I was just like, I don't care what rank I am in a game anymore. I'll, will I play competitive game modes? Yeah, sure, because I, I like being competitive. But in regards to, like, my actual rank in a game, I don't focus on it anymore because I found it to be a source of frustration for me. You love the competition, but when you had this realization about how the status didn't mean anything or as much as it used to, you had like a deeper sort of realization. I realized that I was caring too much about a rank than playing the game. I like to play games because they're fun. They're my leisure. I didn't want to only play the game to to rank up. Like, I know I'm never going to be esports level i'm never going to have like a deal i'm never going to be like a top streamer or whatever had you previously wanted to do that i did try streaming i i I tried streaming for about a year i was doing pretty well and then i had a life event that prevented me from continuing by the time that i was able to do it again i just i had lost interest in that point it wasn't like a motivator for me to try to like get viewers and the whole thing was a little frustrating too. I was playing games to get viewers, not to play games that I was having fun in. So like if I really liked playing Destiny, if I streamed Destiny, I would maybe get like three viewers versus if I streamed like the most popular game at the time, double digit viewers, but it would it would never I could never retain a following because if I wasn't playing those games, people wouldn't be interested. And I saw that other people who were also trying to stream also felt the same way was like you're almost forced to play games that are popular just to keep up with the trends you felt like the external pressure wasn't aligned with your desire yeah the same way that like i didn't care about rank anymore and that rank was if i was focusing too much on rank rather than just having fun in a game same thing with the streaming it was like oh i don't really want to play fall guys tonight but you know it's friday night people people want to watch want to watch fall guys things like that and it was just I wanted to do what I wanted to do. Could I stream on the side and stream to one or two per- people at a time? Sure. But then at that point, like, it puts too much stress on my computer, and then I'm not getting the full benefits of, you know, my system. That's kind of where I cut it there. I find that when I feel similarly to you, which is quite often, I recognize in myself a locus of control that is internal. It, do I appreciate? Am I having fun? Is this something I want to do? Those questions I ask. And if the answer is yes, then I set down plans to start recording a podcast. 
the same is true for games. If I'm not interested in playing, you'd be hard-pressed to find me playing a game, whether it's for an audience or not. That locus of control being internally centered is really powerful when it comes to consistency, because you'll just do the thing regardless of the outputs, and you'll get better because you care. Or <laughs> it can be demotivating as you know anything ever could be, because there are no external rewards or pressures that could ever make you change, because they don't matter to you. It's a really powerful understanding to have. Oh, I don't care about what my rank is i just love competing in this game so i'm gonna keep going or you know i don't care what the numbers say i, I could stream to zero people or i could stream to a thousand and i would do what i want to do yeah. and so that can that can be really powerful or really confusing if you're not sure what to focus on if you're waiting for people outside of yourself to give you that like help or red flag or motivation because that's i found really confusing and then that's why i'm really thankful for my co-host garlic fries here he helped do a lot of the ground building in the last couple weeks to setting up this first episode and the podcast structure which means that in addition to my own desire to get this thing going i had somebody else to bounce ideas off of and so not only are we recording in large part thanks to him but he's going to be helping out on the back end with post and what a serif thing to do not only in gaming terms but i think in the og reference to it i feel like on high through the clouds down from the mountain came garlic fries with an insane amount of help and i'm super thankful to have him here today happy to be here did you want to add anything to joaquin's competition are you similar in that regard do you feel that draw to compete um so strangely enough i i do i do find myself having a large amount of motivation doing <laughs> quite a lot of work in a game or, you know, competing. And then, unfortunately, typically what would happen is either my friend group was <laughs> a bit too toxic and demotivated me, or I would find that uh, the result was, uh, unfortunately, the thing that I was chasing, which was either, you know, the gratification of winning a boost in MMR, <laughs> seasonal rewards, <laughs> etc., or, you know, just clout, you know, for my friend group or whatever it is. And, uh, yeah, so uh, for me, unfortunately, I have found more interests around uh, esports analytics press uh, just viewing things like that uh, around the esports side rather than or kind of the industry side rather than the competitive side just because i have found the <laughs> the, the pressures of competing are a bit too much for me personally <laughs> mm, so i yeah. every time i hear that somebody's you know like it astounds me when somebody can come up to me and say calmly that they are you know, top X percent of, you know, players in a video game, because if I were to get to that point, I would not be calm. I would be stressed out of my mind. So, <laughs> so it's very impressive to me when people can, can get to that level. Yeah. Well, I mean, you mentioned a big part of what I find impressive in competitive zones, which is like overcoming in that top percentile, the, the frustrations that Joaquin was talking about in the toxic, uh, team or, enemy team competitive areas i think that for me trying to deal with the amount of toxicity that is in your average um, pvp game or competition on the video game side of things not necessarily in formal competition outside of video games 
I find it to be oh almost exponential the higher you get up. It seems like the more competitive to a certain point, there's obviously an inflection zone where at, a, at the highest, highest levels, there are people who compete that are you know almost like Olympians in the game. They're so dedicated to the craft and themselves and, and building and improving themselves that they are overly kind. You can see this in the, the streams that a lot of the pro players have. But up until that point, I found as I participated in more and more competitive environments, as that bracket improved, there was more and more uh, toxicity, not only in my teammates, but in the opposing team. Is that something you found, Joaquin, as you've gone echelons above? It definitely does, I want to say, get more toxic. Yes and no, because there's going to be two types of competitive people. You're going to see the sore winners. And the sore losers. The sore winners are the ones that are like, even if, even if the match is, you know, they only win by one round, they will just, you know, they'll they'll message you saying like, you know, know your place, stay in your lanes, things like that. And then you have mm. the sore losers who, when you beat them, they you get rage messages, and you're mm -hmm. like, hey, you use this thing, and obviously that takes zero skill. That's the only reason right. why you won. Right. Well, sometimes that's true. Like sometimes, like especially in a game like Destiny, where there are loadouts that are, are have a much higher skill floor, just because they're super easy to use and it makes the game easier. A lot of people so and, I, and I've complained about them before. I mean, I'm sure you guys have heard me complain about Titans and <laughs> specifically Arc Titans during an entire season. I was oh my god, those are the I think the the two. Toxic groups. It's the sore winners and the sore losers. There are plenty of good people. There are plenty of people who, you know, who are, get in the competitive spirit, who, you know, after a really good game, they'll say GG's, you know, like, hey, you're really good. And, you know, sometimes I'll get compliments. Sometimes I'll send compliments saying, like, hey, GG's, that was, you know, you were cracked with this specific weapon. So it's a good balance, but it's one of those, like, it's the mm -hmm. phenomenon where negative things tend to be more vocalized than positive things. So, like, if you go to look at a restaurant, oh. like, if you go to look at reviews for a restaurant, people who have a negative experience are more likely to, like, leave a review than people who have a positive experience. Yeah, when I, I used to work at Blockbuster, the video store, and they had that statistic um, was trumpeted out by the management teams of all the stores. Uh, they said, basically, a bad experience is told seven times as often as a good one. So, if... The, the goal was essentially to, to minimize the number of negative experiences uh, that a customer could have because the, the multiplicative of having seven times the bad faith or bad brand rumors going around versus that one person telling one other person about the good experience you you could never get out from underneath the pile of negativity. So the ideal was always to ensure the customer had a great time, and that way you could avoid that 7x factor of toxicity <laughs> that would come from the reviews that your customers would leave you. And I think that's one of the um, major concerns with social media and the review landscape online with whenever, if it comes to movies or you know, Google reviews or whatever is it's almost magnified with the uh, amount of reviews 
that can be skewed by the hyperbolic five star versus one star, right? Like the because the average is four stars now, all of a sudden any one star review brings the average down really quickly, and it, it's the same effect, um, but it's digitized and available to your fingertips on mass. So it's a really um, fascinating human dynamics kind of globalized. But I wanted to return really quickly to toxic winners and losers because I think it's a really good bridge point to talking about personality types in games and then to swing over to optimization and loadouts. Toxic winners is a really fascinating concept to me. And I have some ideas about why that comes about, but I'm curious to hear, Joaquin, what do you think is the the seed of germination for a toxic loser? Where does that come from, that mentality of, you know, oh, it's obviously a skill issue, and that's why you're using these easy guns, and that's why we lost, versus the toxic winners of, hey, you know, you weren't doing enough. You need to be in your lanes more. You need to be teaming up with me, etc. Despite us winning, I want you to do these things better next time. I think it just for or for toxic losers, for sore losers. I mean, for starters, nobody likes losing, right? Yeah, and I it's... think the sore losers are the people who don't know how to handle losing. What do you mean by handle? You know, if you if you're playing a game, regardless of what the game it is, and you lose. You have three avenues. You brush it off, you don't care, right? You're just whatever, it's just a game. You have the people who kind of like look at like, what could I do better? Oh, this gun that I'm using doesn't really suit my play style. Um, it didn't really work out that well. You know, like, you know, they, they are thinking like, oh, they had a lot of shotguns and I just kept running into them. You know, you're trying to think, you're, you're looking in, inside and you're thinking of your gameplay and what you did wrong and what you could do better next time. Both those categories are people who know how to handle losing pretty pretty well. If they're focused on improvement? Yeah, if they're focused okay. on improvement. Uh, that would be the second one. The people that don't care, or it's the first one where it's, I don't care if I lost, it's just a game. I don't really care. Uh, those people, they're, they're fine. They're, they're perfectly okay where they are. Win or lose, they don't, they don't mind. You have the people who are trying to improve, like you said. And then you have the people who, I feel like they can't fathom that they lost. And they can't understand why they lost. So instead of thinking, I lost because they only used shotguns. Instead of thinking, well, if they're using shotguns, I should be pushing them. I only lost because, you know, I don't have this perk on my gun. Or I don't have this attachment on my gun. Instead of, like, trying to understand why they lost, they just blame everybody but themselves. They were using this gun. My gun isn't as good. At that point, it's my gun. It's not themselves. It's my gun isn't as good as theirs. It's their, their play style, you know, was cheap or something like that. Because you could be playing somebody who's using like a cheap play style. They might be camping in a corner. You have to adapt. You know, if you have, if you're playing against somebody who is shotgunning you and dealing with a shotgun, maybe don't push them. So instead of getting, so those are the people who I feel don't really think that way. It's their way or the highway. Mm. You know, if the way they're playing isn't working, it's not their fault. It's everybody else. It's all a bunch, it's a bunch of external factors that are causing them to not be playing and not winning interesting so this like i feel like that's sort of a deeper truth than just pvp if you don't adapt it's tough to succeed consistently so like oh, absolutely the three the three mindsets you talk about uh one don't care like 
emotionally I will check out of the situation versus investing anymore or even starting to invest to, um, okay, I lost. Why did I lose? Let's figure out because I care how to improve and fix that. Or three, I'm upset and I'm going to rationalize that anger as being justified by finding something external to me to blame. It's somebody else's fault. They did this thing. And therefore, I don't have to change or improve. And I can still care. And my anger at losing, at being beaten, is justifiable. It's almost like they rationalize their feelings. I love that. I love the idea of frustration or anger because to me, both sore winners and sore losers have that common thread, right? If you're, if we're boiling it down to, you know, people who win and are angry and people who lose and are angry, like, <laughs> right. Right. And so uh, I feel like for me personally, in my experience, like when I get frustrated uh, over a loss or a situation that didn't go kind of as I planned, there's absolutely something to be said about kind of expectation and how you handle that mentally. But I think one thing that I really think about is like, what is the focus of my frustration? If it's the enemy player, then I feel like I'm the most toxic, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so if I am like, oh, you person on the other controller are the problem, then I get vocal. <laughs> but if I, you know, if I try to, you know, recognize that, um, you know, one of the things I think about is like, you know, if I would play, if I played, you know, a game of League of Legends and, you know, a, a, a Syndra keeps beating me, you know, and keeps killing me in lane, like I can, I can be mad at the player. I can be mad at myself. I can be mad at the game. There, there are so many different factors of uh, that situation that call for my frustration in a sense. And I think that's really fascinating personally, because it's never really one factor that gets me upset, if that makes sense. So it's like that character can just hit a button. Right. And like do a bunch of damage or whatever. Right. Or like this, you know, this loadout is killing me, you know, more than I thought. And I have been, you know, in the past week saying like that it's bad and, and yet it's beating me. So <laughs> identifying the source of the anger is really important, not only kind of in the environment that you're in in the moment, but also, you know, obviously it's probably a good idea to kind of look into where those types of frustrations came from in my experience in my life at large as well. Yeah, well, it, it mirrors to me reoccurring frustration. If it's in real life, if it's in a game, it's all the same when I feel frustrated because, because it's, regardless of the stimuli, it's me, right? Um, understanding that that's the source allows has allowed me to disentangle that desire to externalize, to point the finger somewhere else and go, hey, okay, I'm frustrated. Why am I, well, where does this come from? Like ask those questions, begin the curiosity. Um, and that has allowed me to transition from the uh, toxic loser category, the sore loser category to uh, the don't care. And then once the curiosity was involved, I could kind of go, oh, okay, now I can channel that truth, which is actually I do care into how do I get better? Because that journey for me uh, took a long time and has honestly been the most helpful in transitioning from the teen rankings back in Halo to a much more comfortable and consistent ascent 
um, and playing in um, matchmaking with Joaquin where I know the people that I'm competing against are way above me. But it's a lot more fun to figure out what they're doing and how I can learn from just getting wrecked. Uh, and that has allowed the whole experience to not only improve me, but be more enjoyable. It um, has also taught me a lot about loadouts and optimizing my play, which I honestly, in the beginning, was very selfish about. Maybe that's a good thing, but I just wanted to play the way I wanted to play. I wanted to do the builds, the um, particular styles or weapons that I thought were cool or interesting. I would just do that. And it's not that I don't do that now, but in playing with a higher caliber of competitor, I have found so much room for improvement. It's, it's honestly quite fun to practice and get owned and practice again and, and adjust my loadout whether it's in game or real life to balance for that desire to do the things I love, but also compete in a um, meaningful showing to try and showcase that the things that I love are also competitive. That's fascinating. I, I resonate with that. I, I feel like in my experience too, is that as my priorities change within a game or a community of gamers, uh, I find that my choices within the game also change. Right. So if I'm kind of like what you're saying is like, you know, at one point you had, you know, a really hardcore focus on, you know, innovation, fun, uh, you know, interactions, maybe synergies, right? Like unique synergies, novelty, et cetera. And then like as some other people started by osmosis giving you motivation to improve or, you know, uh, skill up or focus or whatever. Uh, win, get headshots. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, we, um, it, it seems like there was kind of a shift in your priorities, uh, kind of naturally, and then therefore, what happened was your 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 build decisions changed as well. Is what I'm hearing, right? And it, it it was like, oh, like now I see that this gun is more fun because it's better, <laughs> right? And so, like, mm -hmm. it's interesting how, and I found that too. Like when I am playing for fun, and me and my friend have an interesting, fun synergy to try, that's great. But then if I were to play with somebody who not necessarily turned their nose at it, but was like, oh, I, I don't know if that'd be very good. And just that person has more fun with more effective builds. You, you will see people kind of trend towards that, right? So it, it absolutely has a lot to do with, I feel like, community and, and kind of what we're talking about personality as well. Yeah, when it comes to, like, having fun and, you know, for those in the server who, uh, who play with me know that I love Jotun. I adore that gun. It's one of my favorite exotics, but in top tier games, it is not the best gun to bring. <laughs> For those um, who don't know, it's a slow firing toaster shaped fusion rifle. <laughs> one shot. And it's it's really easy to dodge if you if you know it's coming and it, you know, the sound profile is very distinct. You I mean, there's, it, there's nothing sounds like a Yoten charging in the game. Uh, and then when it fires, you know, it's really good at catching people off guard. But when you're playing in against really good people, it, it, it doesn't work. I'm a huge proponent of, and I've, I don't mean to sound like a broken record, having fun. Yeah. To me, the build that I have in Destiny, 
that's most fun is my submission with Swashbuckler, my Athrasis Embrace, and my Jotun. It's not the best build. I know that there's better ones. I have better builds. I have more competitive builds, more quote-unquote take more skill builds. But to me, they're just, they don't resonate with me the same way that toasting somebody that's <laughs> <laughs> not expecting it. It's funny when you were talking about how, you know, like, you're, you, you want it to be selfish. You want it to bring this gun and you want it to make it work. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely still something that you can do. Uh, but it just comes with the caveat that it's going to take significantly more effort. You know, you could go in with, oh, what's a PVE gun? Uh, collective Obligation, right? The, the Void uh, Raid Exotic from Vow. Uh, what, what type of gun is that for people who don't know? It's a pulse rifle. It's a pulse rifle. And the exotic perk is that it can like absorb Void buffs and debuffs. So you can store Devour. You can store... Uh, like I think suppression, you can basically like weakened. We, you can store buffs in the gun, and it's a hundred percent a PVE gun. It's not a PVP gun at all. Could you bring it into PVP? Would it get some kills? Yeah. Is it going to be as good as bringing in like a BXR or a um, No Time to Explain? No, it's not going to be as good. Those those two guns are almost directed towards PVP, but it's still totally doable and something that i've ran into in pvp before that's always always fascinates me is when i see people who have these pve guns with tens of thousands of kills on them with like pvp kills and it just blows my mind and when you play against them they're cracked they're absolutely like they could and part of it is that you don't know how to play against it and part of it is is that they know the gun so well they know the loadout so well that it takes the skill ceiling and floor and it just moves it up for them. You know, submission, the SMG that mm-hmm. I use, not the best SMG in slot. There's much better SMGs. You have the Huckleberry, which is an exotic. You have the Immortal, Unending Tempest. Submission, is it top 15? Sure. Is it the best one? Absolutely not. But when I use it, you know, because I've, I have almost 15,000 kills with it in the PvP one alone, not counting my PvE ones, I know how the gun feels. I know exactly how long it takes for me to kill people i can't tell you the number it's just it's more of a feeling same thing with jotun like does jotun take no skill yeah you just it tracks but and i'm sure you guys have seen whenever i stream in the server i make some pretty nasty plays with it and it can and that does catch people off guard so that skill ceiling and floor of the jotun from like a normal person or like an average player I feel like if somebody spends a lot of time with a with a gun, they can elevate that and they can make it work, which is why I can bring Jotun submission actresses to trials and be successful most of the time. That's why some sometimes you see people with these unorthodox loadouts and they make it work. And that's kind of heartening for me to hear. Sounds like what you're saying is there's this knowledge gap between the average player and someone who has invested 10 plus thousand kills in a weapon and knowing your weapon that knowledge gap is the competitive edge and so that edge can transfer to any weapon it sounds like you're saying if you understand it at a deep intuitive level yeah i would definitely say it's it it, your intuition is a huge part of it 
an example of it like catching me off guard is that uh, I know how long it takes for me to like if I land all headshots with the SMG, I know how long it takes for me to kill. So what I'll do is that I'll I'll, I'll shoot after the kill immediately reload, and it's just kind of like secondhand nature to me. But what happens to me sometimes is mm-hmm. if I miss a bullet or two, and I don't get that like perfect TTK, and I leave with a little bit of health, now I'm catching myself reloading. So it has its like ups and downs sometimes, where it's like you know the weapon so well that you know how long it takes to kill. But if you miss and you start and you you're so sure you're gonna get the kill and you start reloading, it kind of like backfires. Yeah, I really appreciate in games when they're able to create a situation where you can both do the right thing, the solved best thing, or you can do something completely off the wall different. And if you are good enough, you may not reach you know peak. Uh, you know, uh, rank one, but you can hang, right? You can be there. You can, you know, trade kill for kill sometimes, right? And catch people off guard, like you're saying. And I, I love that when people are empowered to find a good build rather than read about a good build, right? Because I feel like some people, while some people may find plenty of gratification within doing whatever the meta says, I, I, I really personally appreciate when there's room for innovation and also that agency and like discernment of what is best, not just right. Because at the same time, like how did people solve the meta, right? By trying things, right? So, so even if you say, Oh, this PVE gun is being used in PVP and it's doing really well, well then maybe it's a PVP gun. Right. Like, right. Like, I mean, and not right now. Right. Like things take time to change or whatever. But, you know, I I love that kind of innovation and and strategy is is rewarded rather than there's Meta Knight and everybody else. (laughs) Or, or, you know, in in Melee, there was Fox. And if you didn't play Fox, you you lost, you know, (laughs) so. Do you think that comes down to a player desire or a game designer? built in enough space like who's the original mover here for for the creation of that sort of um fulfillment of player fantasy and optimization yeah i mean that's a great question i think it's it's to me anyway it's pretty obviously the game design um for the most part uh i i think um i i don't know too much about the the regular meta shifts in destiny but I assume, based on my other gaming experience, that it's, you know, games with frequent patches tend to have this kind of cyclical balancing, right? Where there's not ever, uh, there's not for the entire lifespan of the game, one thing that's consistently good. And I think typically what happens, unless you're anomaly like uh, fighting games, uh, you have this kind of cyclical balance and meta. So, you know, uh, the thing that is currently beating the meta or winning gets nerfed and then whatever beats that uh you know becomes the new meta right and then that kind of repeats until you know forever and i think that is a good strategy to go um for for balancing but i I think there's also just um you know that there is a lot of individual player skill and also like player agency within that because just because something is the best on paper doesn't mean that people like playing it or enjoy doing that. So if something is the meta, but it's not very fun, <laughs> you know, not only are you going to have an upset player base, but you're also just going to have 
probably a meta that isn't, you know, one dimensional, even though it theoretically on paper should be. It comes down to comfort, too. Like you said, like, you may not enjoy using it. I'm looking at the top 10 weapons in the past week in Destiny. Both energy and a kinetic slot. It's the Thorn for kinetic with 23% of all kills from the top 10% players. And then you have Igneous Hammer. 21% of the top 10% of players are using Igneous Hammer. You know, I don't like hand cannons. You know, so how you're saying that just because it's the best weapon doesn't mean that everybody's going to be want to use it, especially if you're not comfortable with it. If it's too heavy-handed of a game design, like there's it's rock, paper, scissors, and this season, scissors is the best, I find solved metas are quite quickly boring for me because the variety is uh, spicy. <laughs> it's fun when I... Uh, spawn into a PvP match and there's a Joaquin on the opposite team who's toastering people. I'm like, oh crap, I need to adapt. That makes it more fun. When there's not a space for that, I notice the lack in the the gameplay uh, complexity. But when it's too complicated, when it matters, the mods matter, every weapon in my loadout and the, the aspects of my subclass are necessary, which I feel like happens a lot in trials, you know, two matches maybe, all of a sudden I, I realize that my depth of knowledge must be tuned to such a degree that I start investing a disproportionate amount of time. I start to feel like the fun aspect has been sucked out in favor of minute optimization tweaks. And that is a level of complexity that I don't appreciate. Is there some insight that I'm missing? or? or... So what, what I'm curious about, I, I remember years ago, uh, probably over five years ago at this point, you, you and a couple of our friends were chatting about Magic the Gathering. Hmm. And there were, for lack of a, of a more nuanced terms, types of players. Right. And I think there were three. Those who liked big, beefy, high number monsters. There were people who liked to, you know, control the battlefield, as far as I remember. Mm -hmm. And then there were, I, I think the third was just novelty, but, it, you know, help me, help me out here. I remember it, for Wizards of the Coast, who owns Magic the Gathering, they have built archetypal personality types, psychographic, demographic information, but the psychographic was focused on what they had named the category of player groups under, right? You had like spikes, which are combo players. Ah, uh, yes. They had control players, um, and they had people who were Lorthos only interested in the flavor of what they were doing and mm. the lore in the game. The rock, paper, scissors meta of magic is the control player loses to the aggressive player early. The aggressive player loses to a mid-range deck which is big monsters in the middle of the game and value to destroy the early stuff early. And the mid-range player loses to the control person um, because they can't overcome the late game stranglehold fast enough. Mm. And that is sort of, I think, what Destiny tried to do with different ranges of engagement types. So close range, long range, medium range. Mm. I know that there are nest other nested rock, paper, scissors mechanics in the game, but that's the one that most easily tracks, in my mind, 
Can I add something controversial about the Destiny Destiny's <laughs> attempt at that? <laughs> sure. Always. It's called Destiny 2 Year 1. Where Destiny 2 Bungie tried to make Destiny competitive. And one of the ways that they did that is by looking at what made Destiny what keeps Destiny from being truly competitive. It's the RNG in, in the loadouts. You know, it's the random rolled weapons and stuff like that. So if you, for those who didn't play Destiny 2, year one, all the weapons had the same perks. Every Better Devils had the exact same role. Every Aikilo Shotgun had the exact same role. So Destiny 2, year one is unique because there was a meta where certain guns were better than other guns and certain playstyles were better than other playstyles. In the, the first season of Destiny 2, it was Mida multi-tool. Mida multi-tool with the uh, Mida mini-tool. Top tier, same, with, with, same thing with the Better Devils. You didn't really see a lot of close-range gameplay. It was people in the back taking pot shots at each other. You know, Bungie increased the TTK. They uh, slowed down the player's movement. Uh, abilities were had their cooldowns significantly higher than they are today. Uh, TTK is time to kill, correct? Time to kill, yeah. And Crucible was uh, 4v4 in both Quick Play and in Trials of the Nine, which was the competitive mode at the time. For better or worse, Bungie went away from that and went back to the random rolls. They went back to not forcing people to run double primaries. Uh, they really opened up the ability to have you know, your own loadout. But that, as much as I despised Destiny 2 Year 1, Crucible, mainly because I thought it was it was boring. It, it I think it was the fairest. It was the most I would I don't want to say balanced. I want to say it was the fairest because if you saw somebody using a gun, you know what you know what that gun did, you know how far it could shoot, how fast it could shoot, how much damage could it three tap you, you know how much you could get away with. You got to choose paper, uh, right? At that point if they're choosing rock, then you got to choose paper. Right. Wow, interesting. And as weapons were coming out, there were weapons that were clearly the better guns. They were clearly, you know, you have the Midnight Coup, which is a hand cannon from the first raid that I think could only drop from the final boss. And then the only bit of RNG was when they introduced Masterworks. But then again, you could always just re-roll the Masterwork on a gun. It was expensive, but you could re-roll it. So if you got the sniper rifle from the first raid... Uh, that whose name is escaping me it was I think it was it had snapshot it was the an aggressive frame sniper rifle that had snapshot and if you could get it with a handling masterwork then that was the best sniper you could run you know there was no two ways about it there wasn't like oh maybe this one no it was straight up better devils was the best hand cannon and then midnight if you could get midnight to drop for you uh, exotics were also very powerful you know when graviton lance came out. That was borderline broken. What keeps Destiny from being competitive today is just the amount of RNG in the weapons. There's no, there's, there's no way to balance that. There's obviously there's unique perk combinations that like certain guns can get uh, that make them interesting. People like, especially when like leaks come out. I don't like looking at leaks, but sometimes you people talk about it. And you kind of are unfortunately forced to hear it. You see, oh, this gun's gonna drop with this and this. So this is going to be the, like the new best meta role. And you'll see a bunch of YouTube videos, you know, but like the week before the raid comes out, you know, keep your eyes out, keep your eyes peeled for this drop from this gun. 
in the raid that's coming out when it got leaked and people are like looking at it and stuff like that. Like this is this is the perk combo to go for. In arena games where everybody has the exact same loadout, super fair. Destiny, just because everybody can have significantly crazy loadouts, it's significantly harder to balance, I would imagine. And there's just no way to keep it balanced or fair. Bungie has tried doing that before where they nerf like a weapon type and they nerf all of the weapons in the archetype and then all of them get nerfed instead of just balancing a certain weapon. That's so interesting. So in game design, there's a kind of a, a, a concept about randomness, right? Because randomness is can be very frustrating, but is also a almost, uh, I think will always be a core component of balance, right? Because if you have, you know, like you're saying, kind of a static solved meta, you know, that's <laughs> not usually the best, right? So either you have balance in terms of numbers and, and ability and power, or you have some level of randomness to even the playing field, right? But what's fascinating about that to me is that, and I'm curious to hear your understanding of kind of how this plays into the, the, the weapons, like there's input randomness and output randomness. So input uh, would be, I get a random event and I respond to it. Whereas output randomness is I do a thing and I get a random reward. Or a random response. Yes. When you're talking about reward, are you talking about like a drop or the output is random? The output is random. I suppose it doesn't have to be a reward in particular, but yeah. Okay. I'm not so sure about the first one. Could you re re-explain that real quick? Matchmaking is a good example, right? So you so you get not necessarily random, but you get given a random to you uh situation or event or weapon or whatever. And then you must respond to that, but you have full agency in how you respond to it. So uh, input, I think, is the random input, I think, is necessary. Um, you, there's no way to go around it. You know, you don't get to decide who you play against. Right. right. Um, that's always hard to balance because it's hard. And there's a reason why no game has, has it perfect. There's, it's hard to give skill a number. You know, MMR, ELO, call it whatever. CSR, combat skill rating. All of those things are doing their best. Try to assign you a number when you're tr being paired up against people. Um, no system is perfect. You know, you're always going to get... And it also depends on the player population when you're playing. You know, obviously you're going to get a lot sweatier people Friday nights than you will Tuesday during the day. That you kind of have no control over, unfortunately. You can try to minimize that by, you know, if you're playing Trials... You can minimize that by going into a three stack and then that way you, you don't have to worry about your teammates, but then you're being put up against other three stacks. So you do have a little bit of control over that in destiny. At least destiny will try its best to match, make you according to your fire team size, some control over that. As for the output, when you first brought it up, I thought of it more as a mechanical output, like bloom guns and destiny don't except for the ones that came out i think last season season the witch guns and destiny don't have a set recoil pattern except for these new guns that just came out last season when you were talking about randomness i was thinking of that because it reminded me of and i don't mean to go all the way back to halo but what really killed competitive halo in my opinion is bloom is when bungie added 
when you fire your gun, your cone increases and your shot can go anywhere in that cone rather than staying centered. Yes, so that is a perfect example of output randomness where you fire the weapon at a point and it randomly results. The output is randomly assigned within a space around that point. And then that, honestly, you can't really control. I mean, you can try to pace your shots. Right. But even when, like, 343 took over Halo Reach, they when they did the title update, they, they tried to remove Bloom mm. because they're like, oh, you know, this really killed Halo. Um, but you see it a lot in modern games. Um, I prefer, if I had to pick between one, I would prefer the recoil pattern rather than just randomness. There is a way to mix it. Uh, I know Counter-Strike does that, where the guns do have a recoil pattern, but if you hold the trigger down, they do kind of tend to shoot all over the place. That idea of taking a unbalanced, random, unfun mechanic and putting it in a place that makes sense sounds very good to me, right? So where, so where it doesn't discourage the entire action, but an abuse of that action. And it becomes a skill. It becomes, yes, yeah. you know, you, you, you can't hold on the trigger. You, you need to have some discipline. And that's how you take that randomness and you make it skillful. So we're talking about controllable variants versus uncontrollable variants. And I think about uh, our previous conversation about agency and um, locus of control. And I go, okay, I can control as much of the um, input randomness rng uh as i can from my end okay my emotions aren't going to play a factor here i'm going to you know make sure that my loadout i understand it as deeply as possible so that there's no like other variables that i haven't accounted for as much as i can but there's always going to be that bloom affecting my weapon does that mean that the rng is being used basically as a disincentive is it is it a punishment tool that's that's an honestly great question i don't know but I think the insight that I just realized about the bloom kind of later in the timeline of firing in your weapon, mm-hmm. I think that sounds to me punishing. Um, and I don't think that RNG is inherently punishing. I think in terms of emotionally, psychologically, I would say it's a little punishing because, and, and you know, this is uh, personal as well as just from my understanding of game design, but like, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, give somebody a random reward and have them feel good about it every time. Right. Which is psychologically punishing when you don't get a good reward. And what we know from the studies done on random rewards is also the most addictive. Yes. Yeah. Which is crazy to think about. Okay. It turns out that the human machine really loves random reward scheme, which sounds also like, thriving in punishment to me which is a weird way to conceive of rng or or the uncontrollable variance because we desire the ability to control as much as we can to to be able to say this pattern um that i predicted is still true when that random frustration gets input oh man does it feel frustrating and oh man does it feel good to figure out how to get it back within that pattern. What's interesting about that is that input randomness doesn't feel nearly as bad, typically. And I think roguelikes have kind of solved this recently. Mm. In that they don't, they give you random rewards. 
you always have time to build around them. You get them after a match is done, not during. You you know, I'm thinking Slate Aspire, Peglin, uh, Vampire Survivors, etc., right? I mean, you, you get level ups and rewards periodically, but typically in downtimes, right? So you have time to say, okay, I have a random thing. Now I strategize around this thing. So rather than it being a punishing limitation, it is a creative incentive, mm. which is, I think, where people thrive. And I think that is the style of, if you want to argue that it's a punishment, I suppose you could. But I would say that's the sort of restriction that people do thrive in and actually kind of build up really robust like enjoyment for in a good, healthy way. Because building around situations that are limited is... Uh, at least for me and uh, from my, my understanding of human psychology is like is fun that's interesting it reminds me of season of the witch the cards that you could use to do the seasonal activity you could pick your deck so of the however many cards i think there's 30 ish there was a set of five that you could or more that you could put into your deck and they would get randomly drawn to modify the encounter and that to me was much more fun than what we see happening with the coil right now, where people are complaining on the bungee forums about how togetherness is the worst modifier ever because it was randomly assigned, you don't get a choice, and it's a punishing uh, modifier. It makes the thing harder, and you didn't get a choice at all. When the, when the agency is returned to the player, you see, I, th I think that's truly the creative part, right? You get the choice, even if it isn't absolutely free choice. The restriction gives you the confines of the sheet of paper for your creativity to build your perfect drawing, your fun loadout in. Absolutely. And I mean, we see that in games like Elden Ring, right? Or, or maybe it's Dark Souls. I, to be fair, I haven't played these games very much. But from my understanding, we have loadouts in the beginning, like classes that start out with less and that is a choice that you can make what's interesting is when you go into a game trying to win and that's your goal having a random decision being made for you that makes it either harder or easier to win feels horrible right because if your goal is to win and you get something that actively harms that that sucks and i think what's fascinating though is that uh, a lot of games, what they do is they try to balance the the outputs or the, the rewards, right? So they say, okay, these eight items or cards are all at the same power level. And so if we randomly give one to you, it's not going to matter enough uh, which one you get because none of them impede your progress enough to be frustrating. Hmm. But the thing with togetherness and and trust me i'm on the camp that's like i don't think it's a good modifier is that the player does have agency you have to stick with your team <laughs> you know you, like you, you get the choice of going solo away from your team or sticking together yeah and it's 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 like uh having grounded you know like it's you get punished when you're up in the air and it sucks because the vertical gameplay in Destiny is really fun, you know? And so it's always punishing when... It always sucks when there's punishing modifiers. But just like how grounded, don't jump around. Same thing with togetherness. 
you just you have to stick with your team. You can't just run off on your own. To me, that reminds me very much of I think it's Overwatch that has basically an entire playlist of either custom or rotating game modes. To me, that feels uh, what you're talking about, about togetherness and the grounded effects sound to me more like game modifiers than power modifiers, if that makes sense. So what's strange to me in that is uh, what it sounds like you're saying is that there are modifiers in the game uh, that would otherwise be normal that uh, kind of restrict the autonomy of the player and their skill expression. Yeah, their agency is reduced. Yeah. Because they're punished for it. Yeah, and and what's interesting to me, I I feel like those kinds of situations are solved in other games, which is why that kind of makes me scratch my head, because if you, like, like I've said, like, there are situations in which you're like, yeah, actually, what if we just had a game where, I like, nobody could jump, right? (laughs) And that's a fun idea, but it's not something that I want imposed in the game when I'm trying to jump around and do cool trick shots, right? Interesting. So it sounds like the primary motivator, once again, is how do you want to play it? Like, what are your yeah. decisions, your agency? And is it being... I wonder I wonder if that's the whole point. It, is the choice being given early enough for you to create with it? Or is it mm-hmm. being enforced late enough that you feel like you've been restricted based on your choice, your previous choice? That therein is the input versus output dilemma. How so? Input is the kind of idea of, um, well, you know, strangely enough, I, th- I think we're actually on a slightly different path because I don't think that uh, randomness is appropriate when it comes to, <laughs> for lack of a better term, like deciding what game you want to play, right? Because Destiny with jumping and Destiny without jumping are two very different games. Right, uh, the way they feel, the the strategies you can employ, uh, those are not the same situation. The thing I have a problem with is having that decision be made for you, and especially in a random way, that's even worse. Because if it's made for you in an incentivized way, where you still feel uh, like you're choosing to do it, like you get you know extra chance to get a perk that you want uh, when you play this game mode, etc., that's reasonable, right? But I think that randomly putting you in a game that disallows certain mechanics from happening that are core to your experience feels bad. Yeah, that's an interesting because what I've noticed uh, through the seasonal changes of Destiny as they have released seasonal expansions and the insights as a player that I've gained from how they are designing the game showcases that they basically understand the same concept, right? In Season of the Witch, the previous season, uh, they introduced that idea of um, choosing a card from your deck to modify the, positively modify the behavior of the game, how your outputs changed in your favor. Uh, And this season, they have a similar modifier. Every round that you complete in the seasonal activity, if you've gained enough points, you can buy a modifier that improves your next round of gameplay and you get a you get a small option of choices and very similar to the rogue roguelike fashion that rng feels fun there is no punishment as far as the options they give you they're all beneficial right um it's still somewhat random in that the offerings between rounds change and can expand 
but it's control the controllable aspect is what you choose your agency of crafting the choices the benefits of the next round however the entire activity still has those negative modifiers built in i think it also points out a really fascinating tool for those toxic winners and losers that we talked about earlier which is like how in control of the game do the game designers want the players to be how in control do they want them to feel and what are the repercussions of feeling in control all the time or feeling out of control when it comes to the toxic community space right i find that i want to react more toxically the more out of control the outcomes feel in my games the more punished and out of control the outcomes for me feel if nothing went my way and i couldn't get a grasp on what was going on and you know they were just annihilating me and i couldn't even understand enough to try and learn in those situations i feel like i don't want to play that game in my free time or you know at all ever again because there's no agency i totally feel that the other day when we were playing when i was playing trials by myself i think you were in the call i had and i've never ever had this happen to me before a nine game loss which is why I made the joke earlier that my MMR is probably kind of low right now. I, I definitely dropped out of the 2000s for sure. And just to like balance the scales from my perspective, that's normal and average in my experience of trials. So <laughs> it was impressive for me to one, hear that that hadn't happened consistently for you. And two, that despite having got to eight losses, you were like, we're going to do a ninth. Like that is a, a level of dedication that is impressive. And, and I'll get back to that because part of it is uh, going back to like the competitive mindset and like just having fun. Mm. But a lot of those games and I was, you know, I was getting upset. There were parts where I was upset and the random input in those situations would be who my teammates were. I had a lot of people who left the games. I had a lot of people who... Or just kind of either just running into the team and dying right away or just not helping. And to me, that was more frustrating than whatever my opponents were using. I think I was playing with like a bow and a fusion rifle because I was trying to try. I was, and I was also, my input was that I was also using a loadout that I wasn't very familiar with and I wanted to try it. And I remember, there, I recall there was one match where I just kept getting shotgunned. That's the random input. I'm playing in somebody who's using a shotgun. Okay, I'm going to put a shotgun on too. And then suddenly it wasn't a problem anymore. Because I could control that situation at that point. What I couldn't control were my teammates would do or not do. And to me, that was leagues more, I want to say infuriating, but it was, and frustrating because there was nothing I could do about my teammates. If my teammate wanted to just go off and sit in the corner, there's nothing I can do. If my teammate leaves, nothing I can do. If my teammate sits AFK, there's nothing I can do. I can try playing hard. I, mean, I can sweat a little bit more and I can try harder. But ultimately, 
it's a hundred percent out of my control. Could I have parted up with more people? Yeah, I guess that would be a way to for me to change how much random input I had in uh, in regards to my teammates. But when you guys were talking about like how much control to give the player, you know, it's it's tough because that was an option for me. I I did I was able to control how many people I played with. I could have asked people in the chat who wanted to play. I could have asked my friends or whatever. I also could have chosen to not play, but I wanted to. I I wanted to keep going. So it's. Uh, I, for the most part, I want to say like 95% of the time, I know how to handle losing. Every once in a while, I get really upset. I just like, it's like a little bucket that just like one drop every match. And then eventually that bucket's going to overflow. Yeah. Once in a blue moon, I'll just be like, I'm done. I'm sorry. I'm done playing. There is a part of me that's kind of like, you know what? Like I lost nine games in a row, but I still went for the 10th game. Yeah. If you want to like get good at like PvP games, that's something that you got to learn to deal with. Is like, you know, the common suggestion is if if you're in a losing streak, stop playing, give yourself a little break, because you're just gonna get frustrated and keep playing worse. Absolutely true for some people. Uh, what's What's fascinating to me about that is I've found that uh, effort to get better and to improve can come as taking a break and saying. What do I need? Like asking the question, what do I need right now to improve? And sometimes that's rest. If you play for 10 hours straight, 14 hours straight, and do poorly, the next morning, you might need to sleep in a little. You might need to hydrate a little more, right? Taking care of yourself between stints of effort is very important, always. And during, even, right? Like have water next to you, have snacks, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's what I found anyway to be helpful. Periodically check in with yourself and say, you know, how am I feeling physically, right? Ten years ago or so in my teens, it would be very easy for me to lose sight of, you know, how I'm doing physically and just continue to play and one more run, right? One more game. And I think while that absolutely, I, I 100% agree with you, I think putting the effort in to do one more game to continue after the ninth loss is absolutely an important skill. Always important to kind of look in yourself and say, what do I really need right now? Because sometimes it is playing another game because, you know, you need to get over the hurdle of feeling discouraged. But, you know, sometimes it is, you know, talking with your mom, talking with a friend, you know, hanging out, you know, watching a TV show, taking a minute. Yeah. It's whatever brings you comfort and relaxation. Yeah, whatever whatever it may be, you know, talking with somebody, taking a break. That balance of I mean all of life, whether it's playing video games or or otherwise is exertion. Like you start it off and your heart's beating and it beats until it stops, like it's always working. So like understanding when you're in the rest phase, when you should be, and when you're in the perseverance phase, like that bucket you talked about, knowing the size of your bucket, really a really cool skill to have. Because that ability to recognize that I'm going to be able to build that bucket faster with more rest right now, or, okay, my bucket's bigger than this, I can persevere one more game, or uh, an hour more at work. We have a community member Harky and he swings by and chat when he can but uh, he works for the state and 
the overtime that he gets is really awesome, um, but somewhat mandatory for him. So he'll pop in, you know, and he's like, I've been working three back-to-back shifts and it's been crazy. You know, my barely any sleep. I'm going to have a huge paycheck, but dang. <laughs> and like that trade-off of how much rest versus how much you can persevere, I think is an admirable skill, not only at whatever job, whatever you're doing um, in your life, but you can see it in the best players on games too, is they have this capacity, I mean, especially streamers, to sit down day in, day out and hit the play button, hit the record button. And I've always found that to be uh, inspiring. Yeah. Knowing your bucket, like you said, Joaquin, is just super valuable. For, for me, that skill is knowledge applied, right? I know where what it is, and then I'm going to practice that. And that's where, um, when in game, you know, it's they, they talk about skill gap or whatnot. To me, um, that's often uh, misrepresented or, or inaccurate because most people, in my opinion, are just ignorant. They don't know the knowledge to be able to apply yet. Yeah. So they so however however often they practice, they're missing that first step, and so like a big reason that this podcast even exists is so that people can get an awareness that oh it's the bucket that's what I'm doing right now is I'm figuring out where my rest times are where I can continue to persevere, yeah, and that um, that's the help that I hope to offer. Yeah, I I think one of the most important things I've found in my life is having healthy role models, and something I try to do as best I can just being the best version of myself that I can be in the moment modeling to other people, how I have best dealt with my troubles in my situation. And I think that, uh, SP you've, you've given me a, a wonderful, perfect segue into wrapping this episode up. Cause you know, my bucket is, uh, is filling <laughs> up. And <laughs> I think it's that, um, time for that rest. Yeah. And, and what I can do right now is to say, I'm a little tired. We were up late last night. <laughs> Happy New Year, everybody. And yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, 13 minutes ago, I was looking at the clock and I was feeling a little drained and I was like, can I push a little further? And I think my answer was yes. I was like, you know, uh, I think I can wait 15 minutes because we started uh, not obviously perfectly on time. I, I gave myself that and I was like, you know, let's see. Let's see what 15 more minutes look like. And and here we are, uh, 13 later, and you've given me a perfect out. So thank you. <laughs> Before we go, um, I want to instill that idea, that wonderful idea you had before, which is to recognize a couple of awesome ideas from not only our guest, Joaquin, but from also from you, Garlic Fries. Um, I think you started off with the idea of toxic friends and external motivation in your early gaming life. And how impactful those were to helping you better understand what your priorities were from video games. Why you enjoyed playing. Was it the, com the competition or was it something else? And that was so a question that I think the more often I ask myself, like, hey, am I here because of my friends? Am I here uh, because I enjoy the environment and, and being with people, which is a lot of what the Seraphs are about? Or am I here because I like ranking up? Am I here because the competitive spirit like Joaquin is really strong in me? That's a question that um, is really valuable to ask and to check back in on. 
And so I really appreciated that uh, you brought that up. And Joaquin, there's been a multitude of insightful dynamics that you've given to me. I've got piles of notes here, toxic winners and losers, the rationalization of why and who we blame when we get toxic, uh, the difference between controllable and uncontrollable variants, uh, and if RNG is punishing or not. Um, I really liked the inputs versus outputs dynamic that you put on top of controlling an, an agency garlic rice, but I found that that's going to, I think I'm going to have to jump into that rabbit hole later because I don't, I still don't quite understand input variance to the level that I would like to. So thanks. That's going to happen. And um, finally, that idea of knowing your bucket, it's really um, something that I, I'm just going to put quotes around that. I'm going to take that forward. Maybe we'll put it in the serifs because that's, that's so true. So thank you, Joaquin. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. It's always fun to chat with you, Joaquin, and I'm sure we will be chatting again soon. But just as these things have to come to a conclusion, there has to be an end, there will be another beginning. Once we have emptied our buckets, we'll have to fill them back up and we'll do it all over again. Thank you all so much for tuning in, for listening. As a quick reminder, I'm Espy, Garlic Fries here, and our guest today in episode one was Las Joaquin, the amazing and indefatigable PvP player. And this has been Stick Drift in Dead Zones. 